with me in the book of Isaiah to Isaiah chapter 10. Uh, today we'll be looking at Isaiah chapter 10 uh, verses 5 through the end of the chapter in verse 34. And let me just recap uh, where we are in the book. So last week we took a look at Isaiah chapter 9 and the first four verses of chapter 10. Um, and we talked about how this provides the contextual setting for one of our favorite Christmas verses. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so as we considered this glorious coming kingdom inaugurated by the hopeful birth of a child, we discussed how the promise of a dawning light came amidst some very dark days in Judah. Uh, the Judah that we've been studying for the past uh, several weeks, we've seen has been troubled by conspiracies, uh, bloody warfare, world power struggles. But it was to them that this promise of a child-ruled kingdom that conquers through peace and humility comes. In contrast, we talked about last week, to Emmanuel's promised kingdom characterized by everlasting justice and righteousness. The second part of our passage last week focused on the northern kingdom of Israel's refusal to repent. Rather than humbly acknowledge their need for God, they arrogantly put pride in their leaders who champion selfish wickedness and desperation of the poor. Uh, Isaiah is revealing the judgment of God against this northern kingdom who had joined an alliance with Syria to attack the southern kingdom of Judah. And we talked about how we saw the emphasis on God's judgment against them by Isaiah four times repeating that refrain, for all this his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. In our passage today, uh, Isaiah turns from, um, so he started last week, we sort of talked about with a focus on Judah, and then he switched it to Israel, and now he's going to move to our next kind of major player um, in, this, um, in this situation, the kingdom of Assyria. Um, and we'll see that Isaiah kind of holds out a twofold truth for us, that the people are indeed about to feel the rod of Assyria, but Secondly, that Assyria is only a rod, and as such is subject to the will and purpose of the one who swings it. This destruction through a foreign nation is coming, but that nation too will be judged for its sins, and God will graciously save a remnant of his people who will return to him. So with that as background, uh, let's turn to Isaiah chapter 10. And I'll pick up our reading in verse 5. Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not think so. But it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. 
For he says, are not my commanders all kings? Is not Kalno like Carchemish? Is not Hamoth like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I've done to Samaria and her images? When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, by the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found like a nest the wealth of the peoples, and as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth, and there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. Shall the axe boast over him who used with it, or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. Therefore the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors, and under his glory a burning will be kindled, like the burning of fire. The light of Israel will become a fire and his holy one a flame, and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his forest and of his fruitful land, the Lord will destroy both soul and body, and it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with a rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while, my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. And the Lord of hosts will wield against them as a whip, as when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb. And his staff will be over the sea, and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. And in that day his burden will depart from your shoulder, and his yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be broken because of the fat. He has come to Aoth. He has passed through Migron. At Michmash he stores his baggage. They have crossed over the pass. At Geba, they, run for the they lodge for the night. Ramah trembles. Gibeah of Saul has fled. Cry aloud, O daughter of Galim. Give attention, O Lysha, O poor Anathoth. Madmanah is in flight. 
The inhabitants of Gabim flee for safety. This very day he will halt at Nob. He will shake his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. Let's pray. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we do come this day with worship and praise, even as we hear uh, our children uh, sing in the next room. So our hearts lift up our voices to you on this day that you have made. Lord God, we ask that this morning you would instruct us, uh, both uh, speaking to our minds, but even more so speaking to our hearts, that we might learn your will and that we might do your will. Lord God, we confess that uh, as we look at this passage of prophecy that your servant Isaiah uh, spoke amidst a political situation um, a long time ago and in a distant part of the earth from us, it would be easy for us to, um, to just treat it as a, a piece of, of history detached from us. But this is your living word. And just as you spoke uh, to Isaiah's time through it, so you speak to us now through it. And so we ask that you would speak to us this day, that we would see the same heart problems uh, that we see in Assyria and that we see in Israel are the heart problems that we suffer as well. The same prideful arrogance and boasting and practical atheism in our daily lives we see condemned in these verses. And so we ask that you would help us to return to you, that we would repent of our sin and turn to the one who does and will save, even Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Yes, sir. Um, Background-wise, um, so we're still in the, the reign of King Ahaz here. So he's prophesying of things that are still to come. Um, and he's kind of um, condensing what's to come. So, um, so for example, one particular place, um, I, I see uh, on, on the Assyrians. So the Assyrians are, are about to conquer Israel the northern kingdom, and that's going to happen during Ahaz's rule. But then under Hezekiah's rule, they're going to come march against Jerusalem in the southern kingdom of Judah. So it's going to happen after Ahaz's death, 
Um, and we sort of talked about that um, back, you know, because when, you know, he told Ahaz, well, this is going to happen. It's going to be 70 years from now. And he's like, oh, <laughs> as long as it doesn't happen to me, um, which is not the lesson <laughs> that was intended. Um, so um, so he, he's describing both that invasion against Israel, but he's also sort of condensing that in, in time with the invasion against the southern kingdom of Judah in Hezekiah. And that's, um, if you wanted to, to look at the invasion of the southern kingdom of um, Second Chronicles uh, 32 is one place it's described. Um, and then Second Kings, I want to say 18 and 19. Um, and I think we definitely see hints of that um, when Sennacherib comes and, and besieges Jerusalem. So the latter part um, of the chapter, I, I think we've got allusions to like, um, therefore the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors and under his glory a burning will be kindled like the burning of a fire. I mean, that's a nice description of what happens to this Assyrian army that, um, you know, Judah's all pinned up within Jerusalem and then like overnight the sickness hits the Assyrians and they're gone. <laughs> so it's like, you know, that's that great picture of the guy waking up the next morning and going, you know, he's hungry, so maybe the Assyrians will go give me something to food and he's walking around and it's just dead and plunder everywhere. <laughs> and he's like, wow, <laughs> and head backs in. So, um, but those are future. So I, I think he's still speaking for the most part of a real political situation. Uh, and, and it's something that, you know, as we talk about this, it's gonna be easy for King Ahaz to say, look, I put my trust in the Assyrians and the Syrians came and took care of my Israel and Samaria problem. Um, so it's gonna be easy from his perspective to say, I contracted a foreign alliance and it worked for me. Um, whereas in the midst of that, I think Isaiah is saying, no, let's look at the, let's look at who your real deliverance is comes from. And this kingdom of Assyria that you think is so strong and mighty and makes such a good ally is actually um, a tool. Okay, good. Yeah. Um, so I, I think it's both kind of, again, sort of the real current political situation but kind of collapsing multiple events looking ahead. Yeah. All right, so as we look at this chapter, um, you know, with this focus on the kingdom of Assyria, what's the relationship that Isaiah reveals between God and the kingdom of Assyria? So as we think about this, what, what's the relationship between, uh, I mean, I guess I I actually jokingly put on my notes, a tale of two sovereignties, um, my little Dickens turn. Um, but as we think of these two sovereign powers, what's the relationship between them that Isaiah reveals in this passage? Yeah, verse five, and that ah there, um, does anybody else have something, their passage start off with something different than ah? Whoa, woe is, and woe is the, in 10.1, uh, woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees, that prophecy we looked at last week against Israel. It's the same word. 
I don't know why they're translating it woe in one place and five verses later they're translating it as ah. Um, but I think you're right. It's woe. <laughs> uh, the rod, and he's emphasizing there, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. So Assyria is the rod of his anger and the staff in their hands is my fury, but they still get woe. <laughs> it's not a, um, yeah, it's not a uh, happy relationship between these two powers. Um, good. What else will we say? Uh, is our house will describe this relationship between God and the kingdom of the Assyrian. Yeah, the workman and his tool. I mean, what a great, uh, again, the, the picture he gives us, um, you know, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands, um, and then later he comes back to that same rod and staff at the end of verse 15, as if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. So establishing, you know, using this, this you know, uh, great kind of visual picture of, you know, all right, this is the mighty kingdom of the Assyrians. They're just a tool. And so let's not look to them as power but let's look to the one who's wielding that tool let's look to the one um, who's wielding the axe uh, let's look to the one who's wielding the saw not to the axe or saw good other things you'd say about um, well, what's the picture of the Assyrians that we're given here what do they uh, what do they look like um, what are their intentions Yeah, notice it even says, you know, after describing this, that, you know, God's intentions um, in using Assyria, it, verse 7, but he, that he referring to Assyria, does not so intend, and his heart does not think so, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. Um, it's, uh, it's like, think of all those times in, in, in literature where you, 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 know, you have like an executioner who isn't just doing it because, you know, um, Luther has a great description of ex executioners as kind of like the garbage men of <laughs> nobody wants to be, or nobody should want to be the executioner, but it's a necessary duty within the political sphere. So somebody should be the executioner, even though it's, you know, a horrible thing. But, you know, in this case, he also talks about if the person really wants to be an executioner, that's probably a sign that they're not going to be <laughs> the kind of executioner we should have, because they have that heart of, oh, I'll kill people, sure. <laughs> um, that, and that's the Assyrians we see here, this, this willingness, this desire of just, you know, abject cruelty, um, or this quest for power, that they want to be the ones who are destroying. They want to be the ones who are smiting these other nations. They want to be the ones who are cutting other nations off. 
Um, so yeah, getting a picture into their, how their intentions are very different from God's intentions, even though the, they're being directed to the same action, which is judgment unleashed on Israel. Good. What else do we say about our Assyrians as we see them here? Yeah, Jane. Yeah. Yeah. And that they're the godless nation. Yeah. And to think, again, it's um, as we look at this picture of sovereignty, you know, God is God is the God of justice and righteousness. And he is is giving his just decree. Um, I love the 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 verse, um, you know, how this is described at the end of verse 22. Destruction is decreed overflowing with righteousness. You know, it is a righteous destruction that's going to come upon Israel. It's overflowing with righteousness. Um, and this, the tool of that destruction is this unjust nation. So God and God's justice is wielding an unjust nation to render his just verdict upon this, this people, Israel. That, uh, you know, I think it's it, um, that verse uh, um, verse six is just ripping with irony because it, you know, they would think a God, you know, they would, Israel would want to read it, a godless nation I send against you, um, but I send Assyria against a godless nation. You know, it's, it's the, the, it's been flipped. It's as if Israel has taken on the injustice of the Assyrians. The thing that they're condemning the Assyrians for is the thing that they themselves are guilty of. Um, they would want the Assyrians to be the people of God's wrath, but they're the people of God's wrath. Um, and then Assyria is going to get God's wrath as well. So it's, again, it's the way that God is using them, but they don't get a pass um, for the injustice that they're about to bring out. They don't get free, you know, they don't get, you know, they're not Whitey Bulger with, I have a license to kill. <laughs> Um, from the, I had immunity from the state, so I could do whatever I want. Um, they, they have no such immunity agreement, even though they are um, being used by God. Um, so that's one of the things we'll see. Yeah, Andy. Yeah, and especially, again, um, this attitude of the heart. Um, you know, that, that verse... Uh, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. Um, you know, to go back to the, to the verse uh, Marg pointed out, you know, it's in his heart to destroy, to cut off nations, not a few. Um, every intention of his heart, uh, or in his heart, they're thinking about the entire kingdom of Assyria. Um, because these, again, to go back to Jerry's historical question, Multiple kings of Assyria 
are being talked about here. The king that overthrows um, the northern kingdom of Israel is going to be a different king that comes against Judah. But, you know, they're, you know, you can sort of talk about it in the singular, the king of Assyria, uh, whoever the human person is fulfilling that role at the moment. The intention of that kingdom's heart is, is prideful, arrogant destruction of people. Yeah. <laughs> a big strong mag <laughs> yeah my my generals are you know would, would be kings to anybody else you know you know my underlings and it's that irrigation of power um and i think you're right to sort of think of you know how typical that is of totalitarian regimes. Um, I just finished uh, a few weeks ago this, this biography of, of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and um, the author, uh, Eric Metaxas, so talks about you know, the kind of Nietzschean roots of, of Hitler's regime, that this, that this might makes right view, that we are clearly superior because we can, you know, because we have more power and we can exercise that power. So he hated Christianity because Christianity is a religion for the weak. Uh, you know, this, uh, who cares? If they're, if they're poor, there's a reason they're poor. If they're disabled, then, you know, they're weak and they should be killed off for the favor of the strong. And, you know, this, this the way the, the Nazis despised Christianity as being, you know, he, Hitler had this line, why did I have to be born in a, why couldn't I have a, a religion, a powerful religion, world religion? Why did I have to be born in a state, you know, with this shackle of Christianity upon it? But it's that, that you know, power. Uh, um, oh, what did I, you know, her, her philosophy is this, um, the superior person has the right to take from the inferior. The Syrians believe their power allowed them to devalue others. They praised themselves for the strength and skills that made them rulers of the world. And it's those very things that God is going to judge them for. Um, and just to give you a sense of this kind of, this arrogant speech. So this is from Second Chronicles 32, uh, verses 10 through 15. So this is Sennacherib when he comes to lay siege uh, against Jerusalem. Um, Thus says Sennacherib, king of Assyria, on what are you trusting that you endure the siege in Jerusalem? Is not Hezekiah misleading you that he may give you over to die by famine and by thirst when he tells you the Lord our God will deliver us from the hand of the king of Assyria? Has not this same Hezekiah taken away high places and altars and commanded Judah and Jerusalem before one altar you shall worship and on it you shall burn your sacrifices? 
Do you not know what I and my fathers have done to all the peoples of other lands? Were not the gods of the nations of those lands at all able to deliver their lands out of my hand? Who, were, who among all the gods of those nations that my fathers devoted to destruction was able to deliver his people from my hand that your God should be able to deliver you from my hand? Now, therefore, do not let Hezekiah deceive you or mislead you in this fashion and do not believe him. For no God of any nation or kingdom has been able to deliver his people from my hand or from the hand of my fathers. How much less will your God deliver you out of my hand? I mean, I think that you see the uh, you know, elements of that speech here. I mean, notice this as verse 10. As my hand is reached to the kingdoms of the idols whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria. Other people, they had, didn't just have one god. They had lots of gods and lots of magnificent idols to them. And the Assyrian king is saying, we crush them all. Shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I've done to Samaria and her images? So that picture of, you know, I've already defeated your God when I captured the kingdom of Samaria. What makes you think I'm not going to do it to you when I take Judah? Um, so that, that arrogance, um, that... Um, that, that view of power that, you know, is, is self-aggrandizing, uh, uh, as Jonathan pointed out, you know. You know he's lining up all their trophies in, in verse 9, in a sense. Um, all these commanders and conquests they've made before, and that is, you know, that's showing, you know, the state of this regime. Yeah, James. Um, yes, they do have a main god. Um, notice that he's not being, yeah, he's not being given any, um, you know, any credit here. And again, another kind of, I think another kind of parallel picture of this is think of the book of Daniel when Nebuchadnezzar is, you know, like out strolling around and saying, you know, looking at the glories of Babylon and saying, look at what I've accomplished and, you know, look at all my hands have done, you know, look how great I am. And then that's the moment God comes in and, and takes his sanity from him. Um, but that, uh, yeah, it's, it's taking credit to themselves, and they're not even giving the credit to their God. You know, it's, it's taking the kingdom to their inherent might. Good. Anything else we want to say about uh, our Assyrian friends here before we move into uh, what happens to them? <laughs> So, um, so I think, uh, you know, as we think about this Assyrian's attitude of the heart, um, before we get to how God judges them, uh, I wanted us to just think, because it's easy for us to, whew, boy, those Assyrians are pretty horrible. Um, I want us to, to think about what ways do we adopt that Assyrian way of thinking, you know, just sort of think, uh, in our daily lives, do we not adopt the, the Assyrian kind of view of power, um, the Assyrian view of, of um, self-aggrandizement, to go back to Jonathan? Yeah, Ronald. Well, I think it's, it's just how I think it's important. You know, when you 
yeah, to take those things that God gives us. And I mean, again, um, I used to have, uh, uh, he, he, he died, um, I guess a year ago, um, or sometime since we've been in Massachusetts, one of my favorite seminary professors, just the sweetest, humblest man, Knox Chamberlain. Um, and he, he used to talk about, um, you know, God wants you to be, uh, when you accomplish something, he wants you to be, you know, to have that feeling of accomplishment. Um, and um, but at the same time, to realize it as a gift. So it's like you're excited about something that God's given you. It's not that you're not supposed to, to have that, that kind of yay <laughs> moment, but to, 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 to realize how that yay moment fits within relationship. Um, and so I, I really like, because again, it's sort of, it, it's not that we, we don't have a sense of, we never should have a sense of accomplishment. I, I don't think that's what he's saying, but what what do we attribute our accomplishments to just our self power or to see our accomplishments also as gifts yeah andy yeah this is yeah there is no humility here there is no meekness um yeah <laughs> there is no measure of self control um this is this is power out of control. Um, and, and notice that, you know, Isaiah wants to, to make it that, that this power, and to him, uh, in his world, this is the most powerful nation on earth. There is, you know, in one sense, the Assyrian kings are right. There is nobody else like them at this moment. <laughs> there will be others that will supplant them. But at this moment, yeah. They, they've achieved the, the height of human power, but they don't understand that they themselves are under power, <laughs> that they don't understand their power as being something that's been given to them. Um, they don't see uh, limitations of themselves. Yes. Yeah, that over and over again, you know, to sort of think of, you know, our, 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 our first reaction is kind of the same as the king of, of Judah. You know, Israel and Syria are coming against me. Who can I ally with? Let's go to the Assyrians and get them to wipe out. Um, you know, our first response is always seems to be that kind of reliance upon other human beings rather than reliance upon um, the source of power. No, I, I think it's because um, he's actually referring to, to the Egyptians, um, you know, in, in verse 24. I mean, he's using that passage. Uh, I mean, he's using Israel's history to understand this present situation. Be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you. 
as the Egyptians did. Um, you know, uh, for in a very little while, my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. And the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip as when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb. And his staff will be over the sea, and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. So I think he's very much. I mean, in the, the, the Pharaoh passage, maybe we don't see God. We don't get the sense of God is, is um, or, yeah, we don't get the Pharaoh's eye view, whereas here we do. Um, but I think the emphasis here is, is on, you know, just like that Pharaoh passage, even though God is hardening Pharaoh's heart, He's not hardening Pharaoh's heart to do anything that the Pharaoh doesn't already intend to do. You know, he's kind of giving them over to his intentions. And I think that's the same thing here. You know, as we think about the Assyrians, um, they're doing exactly what we'd expect the Assyrians to do. Um, to go out, to destroy, to cut off nations, to take, invade a land and remove peoples from that land and put other peoples there. And... That's what they've been doing everywhere. And that's what they're going to do here. So their intentions, um, and again, that's the way as we think about this, uh, they are they are 100% responsible for their actions. Um, and they are judged for the intentions of their heart that led to these actions. Um, but God, again, in that sovereign providence, is using their actions for evil to accomplish his righteousness, to bring about his justice. You know, that, you know that, that passage we get in the New Testament, you meant it for evil, but God did it for good. Um, and I think we see that here, even though that good involves destruction um, uh, or punishment for the people of Israel. Yeah, Jim. Yeah, and I think that's a great phrase to think about, that practical atheism, you know, that so often our daily decision-making is, 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 you know, we're thinking about it as if in terms of, you know, in my practice of everyday life, you know, do I really, am I really acting as if God's real, as if God really has power, as if God uh, is really in control, or am I setting up I'm a little mini-god, and it's my will that really accomplishes things. Um, yeah, I think you're absolutely, I mean, that's a, just a great way to think about 
you know, how we, again, adapt the mindset of these Assyrian kings. And, you know, that's one of the things, you know, one of the reasons I framed the question this way, because, again, it's easy for us to kind of, you know, um, you know, you know, Jonathan talked about the North Koreans. I talked about the Nazis. You know, it's easy for us to kind of to attribute evil power to, you know, clearly evil powers. <laughs> um, it's it's much harder for us to to sort of to turn that lens on ourselves. And we're going to hit us in a few weeks. We're going to hit this section of Isaiah where he's giving judgment against the nations, in the sense that we're, we're kind of getting a, a foreshadowing of that with this judgment against the Assyrians. Um, and he's going to you know, go through each nation surrounding Israel and talk about you know, this prophecy of their sins and what they've done wrong. And it's not just, I mean, again, from uh, a Judean's perspective, it would be easy to say, yeah, <laughs> look at those horrible people. But I think Isaiah's point is always to sort of how are you acting like the nations? Um, so even though he's giving real prophecy against real sins of real nations, is he wants his audience, again, to sort of think of the same kind of how are we acting like the nations rather than acting like the people of God. Yeah, and I think you're, I'm glad you brought that out, Victor, because again, as we see uh, the Assyrians here, you know, they're arrogating to themselves the qualities of God. Um, you know, they're arrogating to themselves, uh, you know, attributes that rightly only belong to God. They're making, you know, their practical atheism is making themselves a God. Yeah. Yeah, actually, I wrote down um, the amazing doctrine in our, our chapter is that gods are not necessarily on the side of the victors, and defeat for us is not defeat for God. 
Um, while we have a mental understanding of this truth, it's very difficult to translate it into our everyday feelings. Um, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. That, and it, again, it's in their worldview, they're constantly looking, you know, again, that speech that I gave you of Sennacherib. I defeated these nations, and I, therefore, I defeated their gods. Um, you know, that, but, you know, Isaiah wants to bring this perspective. Defeat of the nations is not defeat of God. In fact, God is bringing about, you know, through what looks like defeat, God is bringing about the real victory. Um, yeah. 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 Um, which gets into the second half of the chapter when he turns the focus from Assyria back to this remnant of Israel. You know, and he starts, you know, talking about these qualities that um, that he wants to see them that you know to to look at this this trust and to sort of think about the ways even as they're suffering from the very real punishment of God, how they can exercise faith even in the midst of that. Um, so uh, back in chapter 7, you know, we talked about Isaiah taking along, you know, that picture of Isaiah taking along his son out to meet King Ahaz as Ahaz was preparing the water, or looking at the water pools and sort of, does the city have a good water supply for this coming siege? And... Um, he took along his son. Does anybody remember what his son's name was? <laughs> Shi'ar Yashub, um, which, okay, not a mo common name, but we see that name multiple times in this chapter, um, not translated Shi'ar Yashub, but translated what that name means, a remnant shall return, or a remnant will return. Um, you know, we get that that name, um, you know, again, the, the way the child in, is the living embodiment of God's word. And now we have that word um, being prophesied here. So as we think about that phrase, a remnant shall return, is this a message of judgment or a message of hope? As we think about that phrase, especially the second half of chapter 10, um, is it a message of judgment or hope? Both. In what ways is it? In what ways do we see that it's both? Yeah. So the destruction, uh, the, you know, as it says in in verse twenty-two, destruction is decreed. They, you know, this is going to happen. Um, you know, uh, all the commands have been given. The orders have been issued. There's no pulling back on the fact that this punishment is coming. And it's coming again with that, I, I just love that phrase, destruction is decreed overflowing with righteousness. This is a right decision that God has, has rendered. Um, but uh, it's not going to be total destruction uh, for, for the people, that there will be preserved uh, this remnant. Yeah, Jonathan. Yeah. 
Yeah, Emmanuel. Um, and to think that's the perspective that, you know, as we think about this judgment, you know, he's going through and he's, he wants the remnant to understand, you know, as they're going through this, um, that, you know, they will no more lean, so that they will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. Um, he wants them to, to know, um, not to be afraid. You know, even that, you know, they're, they're going to suffer punishment from these Assyrians, and they know it, but not to fear it as if that's the, you know, the complete end of them. Um, but to, to exercise trust, which again, I, I suggested a couple of weeks ago, is the major theme over and over again. Are you going to trust worldly powers like the Assyrians? Or are you going to put trust in the God who, in our passage today, who wields those earthly powers? Yeah, Mark. Um, I mean, again, it's the way, uh, I wouldn't say that they're, he's, he's, the remnant, the remnant is more righteous, not as an inherent quality, but then as, as gifts. So God, yes, the remnant will be righteous because God is making that remnant righteous, not because these are the few deserving people. I mean, it's the same kind of understanding of election as we have that, that God is, is, and I would say they're, they're probably, um, I would say, based on Isaiah's um, understanding of the remnant, yes. These are the humble people who realize that, you know, amidst all the kind of political noise and human machinations, they're the ones who continue to trust in, in God. Yeah. It's about belief and trust, yeah. Who do you trust? Do you trust worldly powers like the Assyrians, the Egyptians, um, the strength of your own arms, or are you gonna exercise trust in God? Um, you know, are you gonna, you know, believe? Um, in the midst of circumstances, it's gonna be very hard. You know, as people are being led off to captivity, it's gonna be very hard for them to believe that God is on their side. Um, you know, to go back to what, what you said earlier, um, it's gonna be, or that, that they're on God's side, you know, it, that God's doing something. Uh, it's gonna be very easy to believe that the forces against God have won, um, which is why he gives this little history lesson, which I like, I'm a historian, so. <laughs> I'm horrible at predicting future things, but, um, uh, but, but what he's saying is use the past to live, to know how to live now. So think about, you know, the people who are in those 400 years of captivity to the Egyptians. It's going to be very easy to get sucked into the view that, well, the Egyptians, they've won. Um, rather than Yahweh is coming and will deliver us. Um, it's going to be very easy for, 
you know, he's done the Midianites a couple, so sort of going back to Gideon, you know, think of Gideon, you know, he, that all that kind of lack of confidence <laughs> he has that victory is really going to be achieved, and it's from these small, tiny numbers that victory comes through. So it's in, in the most unlikely of circumstances that, you know, he wants us to trust that, yes, God is actually in control. Yeah, who are you going to put your trust in? Who are you going to rely on? Who are you seeking? Um, which again is, you know, to go back to this, um, the way we kind of, you know, daily make gods of ourselves, um, uh, you know, to sort of get us to look at the heart. Um, so even though, you know, we're talking about kingdoms um, in history, to use that history to think about how we're supposed to, how God calls us to live lives of faith now. Um, yeah, George. Yeah. Yeah. So that the fact that you can call them the godless nation here, um, you know, with all the, with all the revelation that he's given them, and we talked about, you know, how we talked about last week, you know, he's given them plenty of information to repent and return, and they've chosen not to do so, um, which again makes this judgment that's coming upon them completely righteous. Yeah, I think so. Um, and, you know, we've got glimpses, glimpses of that with this kind of all the nations or peoples of all the nations coming to this, you know, lifted up Jerusalem. Um, Isaiah is going to pretty much stop using the word remnant at, after chapter 17, but he's going to talk a lot about, you know, this kind of uh, different conception of what constitutes the people of God. Yeah, Jay.
Yeah, and you know, to sort of, and when you look back, again, that's the way I champion history again. You know, history, uh, I, I often say, I, I do early American history because I need 100 years of hindsight. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, but to sort of see, you know, you can see it. You know, this is the way it worked out. And I mean, just think in your lives, you know, all those times that you had those moments that in the middle of it, you know, you're thinking about all the chaos and conspiracies and, and you know, what, you know, asking this question that James said, you know, why is God on the other side or why is God not on my side? Um, but then in hindsight, you know, you see, oh, <laughs> you know, God brought me through that. Um, and when, you know, all these things, I'm really good at like kind of, uh, and you know, again, it's one of the ways God's worked on me over the years uh, of imagining worst case scenarios. I'm great at, <laughs> at imagining, you know, taking one small thing and, and, you know, adding the next 20 steps to why that's, so the small thing just became the worst thing ever. But remember, I'm a historian. I'm a horrible prophet. Um, I cannot tell future events. And, but I can, you know, again, learn from looking at the past to sort of see that track record of what God has done for me in the past and how, you know, he's promised to continue to be my God in the future. Um, and that's what, you know, again, that's the comfort, I think, that Isaiah is bringing these people, you know, preparing them to, to live through their nation's greatest disaster. You know, the city of Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. The temple is going to be destroyed. They're all going to be dragged off to captivity. Um, but remember, you went to Egypt, and God brought you back. You know, you were taken by the Midians. God delivered you. Um, to, to, you know, it's going to look like chaos, but there's a God in control. <laughs> I'm not touching the yoke fat thing right now, so <laughs> maybe next week. All right, so we've hit our time, so let me uh, close this in prayer. Almighty God, we do confess that it is our tendency uh, to make gods of ourselves or God of, of things and youth, uh, earthly powers, um, as Calvin once said, uh, our hearts are idle factories. Uh, we're good at manufacturing these things. But uh, you command us to trust, to look past um, earthly power struggles and earthly conspiracies, to realize that uh, our hope does not um, rest in the achievement of uh, the political ends that that. Uh, we seek, but our hope is that your will be done, that your kingdom come, and that is where true salvation lies. Lord God, uh, give us that faith to not just believe these things, but to live our lives according to these beliefs, to, uh, to affirm 
and strengthen our trust in you uh, even amidst the most uh, difficult struggles we encounter in life. Help us to be that humble people who know their need for you and live as a people who are in need and going to the only one who can supply that need. Even our Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, whose name we pray. Amen.